Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 76. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. On this podcast, our special guest is juggling inventor and innovator, Craig Quant. Before we talk to Craig, let's thank our sponsor, the IJA, International Jugglers Association. You can find out about this great group of jugglers at juggle.org. Their products and, of course, their great yearly festival. All right, hope everyone is having a happy Thanksgiving. Looking forward to those holiday seasons. Don't forget, you can buy yourself a ring dama at Amazon.com. Let's go! Drop everything now and get ready for Craig Quant. Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 76. My special guest, global citizen, Mr. Craig Quant. Welcome, Craig. Hello. And I caught you in Argentina, is that right? Uh, yes, I am currently in San Francisco, Cordoba, Argentina. Oh, because I'm, I'm near San Francisco myself, but of course, San Francisco, USA. Now, before we get to that and, and your travels around the world, let's go way back to the beginning. What kind of name is, is Quat? What nationality and where did you grow up? So I grew up in the United States, but my family is from the UK. And my last name, Quat, my surname is Chinese because my father ethnically is Chinese, but really he's British. So it's kind of confusing. But Quat is a, is a unique surname, even for Asian people, because what happened was my grandfather screwed up the paperwork and his name was Quat Wong, but he wrote Wong Quat. And then after a couple generations, we just kept it. So my real last name is technically Wong, but now it's Quat. And what did your parents do? Were they involved in any kind of show business or what was their field of profession? My father worked with computers and my mother uh, works with horses. Uh, she does a little bit of equine therapy. Nice. And was that kind of where you got interested in, uh, in modalities of therapies? I mean, I think it was one of the places that I was exposed to it, but not, I think, was exposed to it in many ways uh, growing up. I sort of always had been around disabilities. And what, when did juggling come in? When was your first experience of sort of seeing a juggler? And what was your first thought about juggling? Um, so I was exposed to juggling for the first time when I was nine years old as part of an after-school program that combined chess and juggling. The program is called Juggling Life. It still exists. It's run by a man named Lou DeLauro, who was my juggling coach and mentor. And the idea was, it, it's not a social circus program, or if you ask them, they wouldn't know what a social circus program was. It just was this unique thing that started. Um, and I was originally drawn more towards the chess. I fell in love with the chess. I was not a huge fan of the juggling. I focused on Diabolo, Flower Sticks, Poi, all those things, because the cascade was like impossible for me to learn. And I avoided it. So I was in that program for over two years before I learned to juggle the cascade. Oh, that's interesting. So even though you had a juggling mentor who could show you the cascade, you were more attracted to sort of the auxiliary props like the devil stick and the Diablo? Yeah, I call them gateway props because you can start very easily. Like you can start to have success and feel a sensation of a reward very quickly. Uh, whereas toss juggling requires more time and resilience to failure. So it was, it was easier. And maybe people aren't as, uh, when, when you have to drop as much, I think some things like poi, it takes away the, the failure of the drop. Do you think uh, not dropping yeah. is also an easier access? Absolutely. <laughs> Obviously, yes. <laughs> uh, I'm a big fan of poi. Yeah, I like poi as well. Of course, when it first came out, uh, people thought it was very limited. Like it just seemed like something you just yeah. swing around and people didn't understand that like any prop. People think a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, people do have a lot of preconceived images. Now I have a preconceived image yeah. of a certain term. So please explain what, what you mean by social circus. Social circus to me 
is the use of circus as a form of social intervention for typically, usually for at-risk or marginalized uh, youth. But now that definition has expanded to include everyone, everyone, anyone who is at need, and that includes everyone on the planet. So it's the use of uh, circus as a form of social intervention for, I think, global change. That's what social circus means to me. And when you got involved in juggling, did you immediately see it as an aspect of that? Or were you interested in performing? What direction did you see your juggling take when you started out? Initially, I just viewed it as a form of uh, enrichment, as something that I did to improve my abilities so that I could function better. Because for me growing up, like uh, I was diagnosed with different learning impairments and things like that. <laughs> Uh, my first year of education, I was I was in special education. They said that I had reverse processing disorder, but over the years, what I what I was able to figure out was that the way that my brain operates is it, it's a sort of hyperactive, and in order for me to control that, I needed to increase my capacity. So I used chess and juggling as a way to increase my capacity so that I could process my own mind. <laughs> it was always a tool for for self help. That's what juggling was to me. And what was the thought process behind your mentor's decision to combine those two activities? Was one sort of mental, one sort of physical, or did he see similarities between juggling and chess? I think he, the first one, I think he just sort of sensed it intuitively, and he had the unique experience, or the unique qualification of having experience in both disciplines. But later on, I, I went with my research to, to discover more how closely related chess and juggling are and how they are affecting the brain in, in very similar ways. They're developing similar capacities, but they complement each other really well. Interesting. Do you think that if someone wanted to improve their juggling, taking up chess could be a help? Absolutely, for sure. It's going to increase your, your connectivity. It's going to build new, new schemas for you to process more information in less time. And is that the same with other activities, let's say games like poker, or is chess unique in that uh, capacity? So juggling is, is very unique in its capacity, but it fits into a, a category of activities, which generally we define as art forms. Anything that allows you to detach from your linear sense of time is going to trigger a similar state of mind. And juggling does this because of its, its, its uh, repetitive rhythmic structure, the same way music and dance do it. Juggling uses the same formula to access that state of mind as music and dance. Whereas chess uses a different formula, but it achieves the same state of mind. Because when you play chess, you're processing multiple possible futures simultaneously, which also allows you to detach from your linear sense of time. And when you do that, the brain starts to in behave in different ways than it does when you are more conscious and intentional of your position in time. Now, when you're talking about state of mind, are you talking about what they call the flow state? Some people call it this. You can call it that. But that's where I started. To understand the state of mind but as i did uh, cross-disciplinary research i found that this is something other industries and other fields talk about all the time but maybe they use different language like mindfulness or meditation interesting so let's talk a little bit more about your background because you have a very diverse educational background i see in my notes that you studied english literature at Ryder university and you graduated uh como sum laude is that correct yeah, something like that. <laughs> it was a long time. It was a long time ago. <laughs> and how do you feel that your study of English literature has impacted your work today, 
or do you feel it has really very little connection? Well, first I did a double do I did a double major in English literature and secondary education, and I had completed all of the classes for my degree for the education, but I did not complete my internship. I completed the the course load for to have a degree in education as well. I think that they both ended up being perfect for me because one, I, I ended up uh, pursuing a career in education reform. So it was important for me to understand the classical models so I could understand what was working and what wasn't working and why. Like if you're going to criticize something, it's it's best that you understand it well. And I understand the, ma the mainstream education system very well because I studied it. The English literature, I think, has given me an ability to articulate abstract ideas, like, you know, to illustrate my ideas when I communicate with people and to be a better public speaker, which is what my career is now. You know, I started off as a juggler, but now I, I give presentations. So the ability to communicate well is important. And when you're going to school, what did you think uh, your professional future had in, in store? I mean, were you, were you following a particular direction at that time? Yeah, I wanted to be a high school English teacher. I mean, I didn't. it's not that I wanted to be a high school English teacher, it's that I knew I wanted to have an impact on the world. I wanted that impact to be come in the form of opening people's minds to not to tell them what to think, but to give them the capacity to challenge ideas. And I felt that English literature was the best subject that I could achieve that goal. When I studied education, I discovered that there's a system in place that is much bigger than my my dreams and that it was going to take something much stronger than that to, to move the world the way I wanted to. And then I found juggling. <laughs> did you continue juggling throughout your college career? And what place did juggling have in your life at that time? Throughout my teenage years, it had like a very small part of my life. I really only did the juggling when I would do volunteer work with the organization that I grew up in. I would teach other kids to juggle the three ball cascade. But I had like maybe three or four tricks. Like it just didn't interest me. But then when I was in university, towards the end of my university, I uh, came down with a really severe period of depression. And that's when I began to juggle obsessively. And I began to progress very rapidly because I was then using it as a form of self-medication to treat my depression. And it worked really well. And I learned a lot from that process. And I was so grateful and inspired by, by what it had done. And I understood it in, in a much different way. That was the moment that I, I began to feel I needed to find a way to share it with more people. But yeah, it wasn't until I was about 23 that I started to juggle seriously. And what is your first performances were like? Did you do some performances that weren't tied into any kind of social work, just like pure circus or, or variety performances? Everything I've done has always been tied to education. So even in the U.S., when I would perform or like my show, it wasn't really a juggling show. It was like a, an, an informative lecture using circus props to just talk about different ideas. And then usually that would be attached to a workshop. So after the presentation, I would work, we'd break the groups up and I'd work with them and teach them juggling and circus. I mean, I've, I have my fair share of like walking on stilt and juggling type of uh, performances. But uh, up until this point in my career, I haven't really focused on that. More recently, I've, I've been interested. I created a prop called the Abacus. And in the future, I'm looking to make more performance props. Yeah, I saw that you had the abacus. I wasn't able to see a picture of that. Is that something you'd be willing to describe to us? What that is, the yeah. abacus? Yeah, it looks a lot like an abacus. <laughs> okay, like the mathematical abacus. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's basically, it's a bookshelf for balls. Hmm, okay. And I, I use 12 balls. Uh, it's an important number for the, the concept. And what I, I put the, the bookshelf on a like 15 degree incline. 
so that uh, and the the tracks are about one meter long. So what I do is I roll the ball from the side that I am on up the rail. It hits the other side and then it rolls back down. And I have 12 of those stacked on top of each other vertically. So if you're, it's basically a juggle board, a vertical juggle board, but it allows me to use both sides, the right and the left side to move up and down. And you can create beautiful expressions of uh, the geometry of, of time, which is juggling. Um, and, and it's a very s slow performance. It's not a very fast paced performance. So let me get this right, because the juggle board lays flat, so you don't have access to both sides. But with the abacus, you have access to both sides, and that allows a lot more yeah. variation. And I, and I can play with it from all four sides. And you see this as also a performance as well as some as a therapeutic tool? No, the abacus, that's a performance. That's, a, that's okay. an artistic concept that I'm developing. And I have two other props that are going to go along with that. The abacus uses balls, uh, points in space to create a line. And then I'm basically going to create two more props that do the same thing, but working with uh, different like mechanical structures. So one will have flat surfaces that move up and down, and that's going to create a, a three-dimensional plane or a two-dimensional plane. And then the other one will work with two-dimensional planes that will create a three-dimensional movement in space. So they're, they're big projects, they're big dreams, but I believe that it's, it's important that I achieve that goal to solidify the work that I'm doing with the inclusivity. I need to not just show that what I'm doing is represented at the bottom, but can also be at the top. So that's why it's important. And do you find it advantageous that when you go to these different festivals, that you also can offer a performance in addition to your workshops and <laughs> lectures? No, no, that's just something I do for, with, with and for my friends. Oh, I got you. So it's not part of, your, of the package you offer. It's a no, no. something different. It's just some, if, my, if I want to play with my friends, I play with my friends. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that. Let's go back a little bit because there was something else interesting in your background I wanted to talk about. You spent three mm -hmm. years as, as an aircraft hydraulic technician in the U.S. Air Force. Yes. I imagine that's something not that many people would, would know about you or assume about you, that you were at the, in the Air Force as a technician. Can you tell me about that, please? Yeah, people are always surprised about that. I thought it was, I mean, one, it was a really educational experience for me. It was like the opposite of me. And uh, I believe it's always good to challenge yourself. So part of my reasoning for that was I viewed it as a learning experience. I got to meet and interact with people from America that I I didn't understand before, and then afterwards I could a little bit more. So there was all these good things that came out of it. But what drove me to do it was the, the economic crisis in 2008. I was trying to finish my university. I had one semester left, and I lost my job, and I didn't have a lot of things going for me. So they were giving out sign-in bonuses. I took it. I picked a job that wasn't going to see conflict, fixing hydraulic systems on airplanes. And I, I hung out for three years. And that's actually when I got a lot of practice in. When I joined the military is when I really started to get good at juggling because uh, I worked on C-17 aircraft carriers and they had 18-foot high ceilings inside. And I spent so much time in there just waiting around for parts to be delivered or fuel trucks or tires. You spend so much time waiting around that I would just juggle inside the airplane and I would get, I would work 12-hour shifts and sometimes nothing would break. So I did, a, I did a lot of juggling. So thank you, United States Air Force, for paying for my juggling training and my education. I really appreciate that. I'm doing my best to pay that forward now. Thank you. Now, you sort of talked about the Air Force being a certain community that was quite different than the circus community. Was there any overlap? What ways were the same and what ways were they different, the two communities? Ooh, uh, actually, <laughs> 
is that's a funny question because they have this thing in common where you have a community of people who emphasize a greater good over the individual. And that's, that's a big part of being in the military. You have to understand that the mission is greater than, you know, the whole is greater than its pieces and no piece is more important than another. So it takes all the pieces. They teach you this in the military that if you're cooking on the, the battleship or if you're flying the bomber, everyone is required to complete the mission. So everyone is equally valuable. And in circus, ironically, we have this same culture. Uh, it's, it's done in, because we believe in a higher calling as well. We think that uh, the promotion of circus in the world makes the world a better place. So you have these two communities that are driven by this sort of like ideological social cause that's, that's greater than the, whole, than the individual. They have that in common. But I think other than that, there's <laughs> not much else because military culture is quite toxic. It's inefficient and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's just a, it's a toxic environment. And how did people respond to your juggling? Was it something that was looked at as uh, freakish or was it kind of a fun novelty for them? Most of them responded to my juggling by accusing me of being a homosexual. Oh, okay. That was their response. <laughs> That's right. how people in, in the United States military respond to people who are different than them. They insult their, their sexuality. Right. So to them, any artistic pursuit equals uh, some degree of homosexuality. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I guess there's certain stereotypes we have about the military. Uh, and they have certain stereotypes about us and our, our hippie ways, I guess. Were there any stereotypes yeah. that were broken by being involved with this group that you thought one thing going in and that by, by working with them, you thought something else at the end of your experience? Yeah, for sure. So much. I, you know, because also I serve with these people and I depend on them and we spend so much time together. I don't think I would have ever had an opportunity in my life to get to know these type of people so well if I hadn't joined the military. And that's an important contribution to the work I do now because my goal is to make uh, ideas accessible for everyone. So it's important that I understand as many different ways as possible to process the world. <laughs> Uh, so to be able to relate, the more I can relate to people, the stronger it makes my work. That's a good concept because when you're approached by people who are shut off to your ideas and they pretty much stereotype what you're doing in a very derogative way to sort of diminish it as having any value at all, and to be able to work with those people on a daily basis, I'm sure helps you a lot in your, your current endeavors. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I learned a lot of other practical skills as well. Like that's where I learned mechanics. That's what gave me the, the, tool, the skill sets I needed. So when I had ideas that I could construct things myself because they taught me how to work with tools. As a juggler, were you kind of already looking outside the box? Because there's a lot of pre-discovered juggling available to everybody. Like you, throughout your entire career, you don't really have to create a single trick to be fulfilled as a juggler. There's so much already available to you. From the beginning, did you already have an idea of creating your own vision through juggling or was uh did that come later as you as you practiced yeah no for me the journey has been a process of discovery there was never any intention it just sort of happened for my own unique reasons and experiences well let's pick up your life after this your time in the air force how'd you transition from that into more of the the work you're doing today and what was your first sort of step into this type of career so I guess at the, when, I, when I was working in the Air Force, doing, uh, working, I was working 12-hour shifts four days a week, and then I had three-day weekends. And uh, one way, I, at that point, too, this was after I had used the juggling to help with my depression, so I became more interested in, in using it more. So I started to expand uh, outside the program that I grew up in. 
the juggling life and I started to do my own projects, Band of Jugglers, which was a sort of a collective project where I just started volunteering at, at different places and people started to come with me. And during this period is when I was developing these new ideas and methods. The first community I worked with was the uh, deaf community. And my idea was just like, okay, they express what they communicate with their hands and I express with my hands as well. Maybe we can find something in common. Maybe we can learn something from each other. When I was exposed to that community is when I was exposed to more severe disabilities because the reality with deafness is that it often comes with mixed disabilities. So they're not just deaf, they have other issues as well. So I went into a situation where I was trying to share juggling and I kind of bit off more than I could chew. And I was exposed to things that I wasn't expected, but I guess I was pretty stubborn and I just believed it. I, I just believed, I didn't know how, but I believed it was possible. I knew it had to be possible because I felt it. And it was through that process of working and sharing and collaborating with hundreds and hundreds of people, uh, learning from each other that I discovered this path. Uh, you know, I never chose it. That sounds like a very organic path like you're talking about. Was this also the inception of the, the desire or the need to create a more accessible juggling type of prop for this community? I mean, that was, that was necessary. It was necessary mm -hmm. to transform the activity. My first attempt, I got it so wrong. When I first started to play with, with diverse populations, I tried to modify them. Like I would give them cups or gloves mm -hmm. and things to make it easier for them not realizing that there's not that I shouldn't be trying to change the person, I should be trying to change the activity. And, and when I made that realization, I think my, my desire to connect with these people is what gave me the vision to see past my bias as a, as a traditional juggler, to realize that there was all of this, this whole world of juggling that is unexplored and will completely transform our community if we make it accessible to people because it means everyone can participate. Uh, that's the reality. And what'd you come up with the term functional juggling? And can you sort of describe what that means to you, functional juggling? Uh, functional juggling is a great word and I'm very grateful for it. It is not my word. It is uh, Lapo Buteri. He's from Italy. He is the leader of the European Props Collective. He worked with me for two years. He studied and apprenticed underneath me. We've done dozens of seminars together and presentations. He coined that term, or he used it first, and then he, he thought that I made it up, but I told him, like, that's not my word, dude. That is your word. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and it's, it's perfect because when you're talking about disabilities, like disabilities is such a horrible word to use to describe people who are different. The language is so hard. It's hard to come up with words that can communicate the additional needs, sort of the additional tension, but without taking away the humanity from the person. And functional in the last two or three years has really emerged as this new term that has been embraced by the clinical field. So functional diversity. Um, you, I work with populations of functionally diverse individuals. So it, it takes on this meaning in the term functional juggling, but it also has a very direct literal meaning because what we do is we first apply juggling to, to clinical ideas, and then we apply clinical ideas to juggling. And when we do that, we start to incorporate non-juggling objects. So we can play the same game, the same juggling game, but I can use a pencil or a fork or a brush, and I can get repetition in time on task with a functional object. When you're working with in the terms of physical therapy, the, the only way you can improve a motor control skill is to repeat that motor control skill. The, the solution is obvious, we know what it is, but getting the person to do the exercise that's needed to regrow or redevelop whatever is missing, that takes time on task and repetition. And, and we create functional juggling as a way to incorporate those exercises into something that is fun 
and socially engaging instead of just sitting there and repeating the same activity over and over and over with no content. Interesting. So the idea of adding fun and adding this sort of interesting activity is a help in the modality of just getting them to do these exercises that they need to improve their overall condition. Yeah. So we do comparisons of like uh, the functional juggling methods compared to traditional methods. And early in my research, I would I would go around and I would observe clinical practitioners and I would measure, I would count how many repetitions they got of the task that they wanted during their sessions. And I was so surprised that they were very low. They were often in a 35 minute session, often under 600 repetitions of whatever movement they wanted. Mm -hmm. The reason this was, was because of constant interruption. Often they were working with people who had cognitive impairments, so verbal communication didn't mean much to them. And yet these people chose to just keep speaking and repeating themselves. So there was constant interruption, the, there was not constant engagement. So it's 35 minutes of facilitation, but it's not 35 minutes of repetition. Whereas with functional juggling, because we use rhythm to promote uh, impulsive or involuntary movement, because when you have rhythm, you begin to move involuntary, and then we, we capitalize or we exploit that moment of, of involuntary movement to get you to keep moving, to construct a rhythm. And because I have rhythm, if I work with you for 10 minutes, it's 10 minutes of repetition. So compared to the clinical settings, which I estimated was about an average of 600 repetitions in a 35-minute session, Typically with functional juggling, we will do 10 to 15 minute sessions over, you know, and repeat them. So compared to the 35 minutes of therapeutic, traditional therapeutic methods, they get 600 repetitions. With functional juggling, you're getting 1,800 repetitions in the same amount of time. And you're doing it while developing bilateral sequencing capacity. So functional juggling allows us to destroy the existing standards and expectations of, of repetition for, for clinical fields. Because we, we create play. We integrate play. They don't integrate play. That's the difference. And it might help also if you could describe your main prop, this juggle board, and how it allows people with different uh, difficulties to access it. Because it's not what you would call traditional juggling. Could you describe the juggle board for us? Yeah, so it's like a table. It has five lanes, one in the middle and then two on each side. Uh, they're all equally spaced, and there's a ball in each lane. At the end of each lane, there is a pocket to catch the ball so that when it reaches the end, it doesn't roll away. This creates a space that we can play safely. The, the challenge with learning to juggle is the reason toss juggling is so inaccessible for people is because it's an activity that you're not able to experience until you have the ability to do. Mm -hmm. they, that sounds strange, but there's many other examples of that, learning to ride a bicycle and learning to swim. Same exact challenge, same motor control sequence, right, left, right, left, same obstacle. If you don't know how to ride a bicycle, you fall. So you can't experience the activity until you can do it. That creates a gap in the learning model. So to solve those problems, we created training wheels and we created flotation devices. Now people are able to experience the activity as they learn. So that allows them to get the sensory feedback information they need to make their adjustments. With toss juggling, we don't have training wheels. The juggle board acts as the training wheels for toss juggling because it creates a platform where there, it removes the margin of error. The only, we're not focused on coordination or, or even movement. We're focused on the relationship with space and time, what the relationship between synchronous and asynchronous is, and what the relationship between lateral and bilateral is. This allows us to develop a person's sequencing capacity well beyond what is required to do a three-ball cascade, so that when we transition from the juggle board to traditional toss juggling, the only thing we have to teach is the motor control difference. That is it. I work with, with five-year-olds that I teach to do the, the, with the juggle board, five balls cascade on the juggle board, and then maybe around age seven when they develop the motor control capacity to throw, 
that is the day that they, they start toss juggling because it's the difference between going from balls to rings to clubs. The juggle board just extends the spectrum of juggling. So now we have more levels that people can enter and make their way up throughout the, the progression of juggling ideas. Wow, that's fascinating. Do you ever get any backlash where people say, oh, well, that's not juggling? For sure. Is there any kind of backlash about using the term of juggling in that? Because I, I think it's juggling, but what's your experience? My experience is it's always the same person, the same uh, classical model of a person, mm-hmm. of a juggler. Okay. It's always it's always this one guy, <laughs> and and I don't give a. <laughs> that's right, the purest, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's always going to be that. I think if you are someone who strives to make change in the world, then these people who attack you, this is just these are benchmarks. This is letting you know that you're making progress because I'm challenging the system. They feel threatened by new approach because it challenges their ideas, so they have to attack. That's how I know I'm doing something right. It means that I know I know I'm making change because. At the beginning, I didn't get attacked so much. But in the last two or three years, people have put a target on me. Some people have put a target on me. That's a strange word, threatened. Why do you, people, why do you think people are threatened by what you're doing? Because it's human nature, it's human nature to resist change. <laughs> and okay. a lot of people, okay, okay, so this is my theory. My theory uh-huh. is that there are certain jugglers in the world where juggling is such a, it makes up such a big part of their personality, such a big part of their identity. Like, I'm the juggler. I'm the special one in my group. Mm-hmm. I can always do juggling. So right. it does a lot of the heavy it does a lot of the heavy lifting for their personalities. Okay. So these people who rely on juggling to uh, lift them up this way, their identity, it makes them feel special because not everyone can do it. And then I come along and I say, "Well, guess what? Everyone can actually do this. It's not that special." I'm not saying you're not special. You're still special and unique just like everybody else. Mm. But juggling itself does not make you special. You are special for other reasons. And I think there's this community or, or juggling right now, because it's inaccessible, it attracts these type of people, these type of people who want that sort of uh, identity of hierarchy, like, oh, I'm better than you because I know how to juggle and you don't. I know it sounds immature and no one's going to admit to that. But if you take a look at the community, if you take a look at the dialogue online, you can't deny that that's there. Well, you see a lot of people, like you say, whose who's sort of personality and reality is caught up in being a juggler. And they're even like, yeah. well, I don't want the conventions to get any bigger because that will take away the specialness of what I do. Exactly. Yeah. And I threaten all of that because I'm open in the doors wide open. I'm, I'm, letting, everyone, I'm letting everyone in. <laughs> Another thing that might be quite threatening to, that is a wonderful concept is everything you invent is open source sharing. Yeah, that's another thing that makes enemies. You don't say, I, this is mine. You open it up and, and, and... No, and that's what has made me the most enemies in the last two years because it goes directly against the existing cult, the artistic community's culture of people who say, if I create a trick, I own that trick. If I invent a new prop, I own that prop. It's mine. You can't have it or you need to give, you need permission from me or you have to mention my, my name every time you use that thing. And if you don't, then I'm going to make sure that nobody trusts you or believes in you and I won't hire you. And, and I will, so I've been there's there's certain parts of the community I'm no longer welcome oh. uh, because of that. And that's their problem because the change is happening whether they want it to or not. Like at this point, it's a global movement. They can't stop it. Did you feel fear of like sort of the financial aspect of it, like the control of I think maybe that's another thing people have trouble letting go of. I invented this. Therefore, I should get paid for it. I own it. Therefore, if you want to use it, you have to give me money. Yeah, I don't believe in that. Okay. I don't believe in that. And that's not why I'm alive. I'm not here to make money. I don't believe in trying to uh, achieve some legacy that I could be remembered because I don't expect to be remembered. 
we don't remember people who lived 2,000 years ago. How many people do we remember from 2,000 years ago? Like Jesus and who else? Sure, maybe Plato or some of the Greek philosophers or something, yeah. Yeah, exactly. No one, I don't care how big of a juggler you are, no one is going to remember you in the future, so stop trying to be remembered, number one. Number two, that this argument that you just made, or this is the thing that people tell me all the time, like, why don't you make money from this? You know, you created it, you did all those things. This is what's wrong with society. This is what I am fighting against, the capitalism, this competitive culture. It does not make sense if you want to have progression. The world is a up place. There are, there's so much inequality. I don't have time to wait around to build a business. And, and, and I don't want to control or centralize this information because the, the change that we are proposing, the type of access that we are given to this type of enrichment is, is unprecedented. Learning to juggle affects the brain in the same way that learning to play a musical instrument does. That is something that everyone has a right to. I am in no position to withhold that access to anyone. Also, I was really inspired and I studied a lot Michael Motion's career, which influenced my decision because I observed him and he was to me a god. He was a legend. He was the most inspirational man in juggling. And he took a really dark turn in his career. And I identified with him early on as a creator. And I said, I, want, I didn't want to make the same mistakes that man made. I want to live my life happy. I want to always be creative. I don't want to run out of creativity. And I assessed that the problem that he made for himself personally was that he created, he thought that he created a, like a, a trick but he, or a prop, but he, he, what he created was a discipline, right? And you can own, you can try to own a trick. You can try to own like uh, styles, but you can't own a discipline. So Michael Motion tried to own a discipline and that is what caused him to become detached from the community. That's what created the resentment. I decided that I was never going to end up in that situation because I was always going to share. Is that what you mean by that dark turn in his career that after you created what they call now contact juggling, it embittered him that people took it and, and used it for their own purposes? Exactly. Whereas if he had embraced that process, history would have been a lot different. I wonder if also that kind of sort of cramped his creative style in that it seems after his initial burst of creativity, with the triangle and contact and the the sticks and the hoops and you get that then you, then you get the pressure then the pressure to always be creative and this this is something that I uh, Jay Gilligan gave me good advice about too like or he warned me early on in my career like about that okay if you're going to be someone who's considered a creative juggler if you're going to enter this world of being this type of juggling personality you have to be careful about protecting your creative space when people try to put you on a pedestal, then everything that you put out next is going to be compared to what you did before. So mm. then when you enter the creative process, you are already thinking about the outcome, about the product before you've created anything. I don't consider myself to have invented anything. I discover things. I create environments and opportunities where I do explore, but I do so without an intention. And I'm able to do that because I'm focused on staying under the radar. I don't care how many people tell me I'm a genius or what I've done. I am not going to believe that bullshit because if I do, then I'll lose, that'll create this expectation that I have to create something that's great. I create the things that I want to create. That's why they're great. If you end up in a situation where you're creating for other people's expectations, that will crush your ability, that crushes your creative space to discover new ideas. And in your trips to these foreign countries, because it seems like at a certain point, a lot of people, like, like I say, capitalism-wise, they might stay in the United States, they might focus on where they can make the most money, but it seems like you've gone to these communities that are the exact opposite. When did you find this desire to go out of the States and, and bring this to the whole world? And where was your first place you went to? 
Oh, man. Okay, so from the U.S., the first time I made a presentation was in 2011 at the American Youth Circus Organization Convention. Funny story, I, I didn't know that that organization existed. In like two months before the festival, the director of the organization happened to be walking by like in a park. Or no, one of her students found me and then told her about me, and then she discovered me and invited me to this conference. Like it was such a coincidence. And then that's when my life changed because then I started to get invitations overnight to circus schools around the U.S. And that's when I realized what I created because before that I had no idea that I had really changed anything. It was only when I shared it that people told me that uh, it hadn't been done before. So, the, but my first job in Europe was working for Jay Gilligan at the at Doc University as a guest uh, lecturer. I went there at the time. Jay and I were both really fascinated with with Michael Motion, so we would talk a lot about him. And I shared with him this theory I had about sacred geometry and time and juggling. And I was doing a lot of research on sensory perceptions, on how we process the sensory stimulation of juggling. So he invited me there to give a seminar on those topics for the students at DOC. It was a strange seminar, my first job in Europe, because I was working with like the most talented jugglers at the most prestigious university. And I was mm -hmm. coming from the bottom of juggling. So it was a little strange experience for me, but it allowed me to discover that all these ideas that I was working with, they were completely transferable throughout the entire spectrum of juggling. Elite jugglers can benefit from these ideas as much as uh, beginners. What are some of the ideas behind functional juggling that you think transfer to the elite juggler? I think the, the sensory relationship with juggling, understanding how we process time, sensory, what gives us our sense of time, is an important thing to understand as a juggler. I was able to discover this uh, through like years and years of research, but you don't need to be a, an astrophysicist to get the idea. You just need to do, I think, a couple sort of like uh, workshops because <laughs> uh, mm. you, you need to have experiences. Like it's not something that I can communicate to you with words. I, I could try. It's not going to make sense. But I have activities, different games that we play, different sensory things. Working with the juggle board really helps because it, what it does is it reduces your concept of juggling down to its purest, simplest form. And at that level, it's not a throw. It's not an action. It's a relationship with space and time. And when you start to think about juggling just as it at its core, not with any preconceived notion of what it is, just that it's, it describes a relationship with space and time, then you are free to create in any direction you want, which is why it's so effortless to me. Like I new juggling props. It is not <laughs> impressive for me. I'm sitting in a room right now. I'm looking at objects. I can make 20 juggling props. That's ju discovering juggling is, is everywhere. This again, I think makes me challenges the mainstream culture or the, the high level culture of the juggling, because this is something for set for generations has been only the most prestigious, only the most brilliant jugglers can create new forms of juggling. And that's why we're special and you're not. And I say F that I say juggling is everywhere. We're looking at it wrong. The de defining juggling as a throw, as an action, is as stupid as trying to define music by one instrument, by saying all of music is piano and no other instrument exists. That's the reality, with, because that's the relationship you're describing. So I think the impact for high-level jugglers is to clarify their personal understanding, their personal relationship, their personal meaning with juggling, and to use that as the catalyst for their new creations instead of their preconceived notions of what juggling is or is not. Now, what do you think the difference is in a high technical juggler? Uh, let's take Wes Peden, for example. Like, Wes Peden's a very high technical juggler, but the amount of original tricks he's created is phenomenal. So what's different in a Wes Peden's brain than in some others' brains who's high technical but lacks the creative aspect of, of coming up with all these different variations? What makes Wes Peden special? Wes is another person. I, I, I've studied his work. I've observed his development throughout his career. 
And even I was just in Chile with him and I observed his seminar there. And we use very similar systems where I realized that he gets to his level of explosion the same way I do. He's not creating with a the end point. He's creating with the, the opposite from the opposite end where he's using systems and formulas. He's applying theories. Instead of applying movements to theory, he's applying theory to movement. Does that make sense? So he's he has an yeah. endless supply. He has an endless creative supply. And I can't, I mean, I can't track all of his systems. Like when you watch his videos, you'll see like, you know, he'll do a certain series of tricks and you can kind of follow the path of how he explored those ideas. I've been able to observe a few of them, but he has so many. <laughs> he is someone who I, I don't think I can understand actually how he manages to be so creative. Well, it's interesting to watch him practice. I was just at the EJC and he was, you see him practice and he, he, like one move where he like would roll the ring down his arm and would cause mm-hmm. it to sort of vibrate as it came down his arm. And you see how he takes one variation, which leads to another variation, to another variation, yeah. this endless creative pursuit of just newness. And, and yeah. where, where, where will this take me? As opposed to what you were saying is there was no goal like, oh, I'm going to need this trick for my routine. It's where will this take me? The existence of West Peden, I think it promotes this idea that, that I'm promoting as well, which is that like uh, we can all be creative. It's You see how it's effortless for him. It's effortless for me to come up with new ideas. Every day is an opportunity for new ideas. And I would like to see that be a skill that's more transferable. Or I think this is your question, like what's the difference between that guy and these other people? I, I think my answer to that is the way our culture, the way that we introduce juggling, we introduce it as a technique. We teach the three ball toss and cascade as the first trick. And then from there, you have to practice and learn all these other tricks. And then 10 years into your training, someone says, okay, now say something with your juggling. That mm. does not create a culture of artistry. So like, for example, in the five-step method, in the seminar, we, we put a lot of emphasis on as soon as the students have a new trick, whatever it is, if it's juggling on the floor, if it's juggling with their body, if it's making rings and balls bounce around, give them an opportunity to create for themselves with that material right away. Don't wait for them to do the cascade. The first time they have a juggling lesson, they should be creating new things with juggling. This is to create a foundation. It it creates a different relationship. They don't see the juggling as a technique. They see it as a form of expression. And that's the impact that we need to have. We need to get away from this one ball, two ball, three ball technical idea and introduce juggling in a way more than we introduce dance. No one comes in and tells you there's only one way to dance. And if you don't do it, you're not a dancer. Right. So that mm-hmm. encourages everyone into the same track and everyone's racing down the same path when there's all these other directions we could be exploring. That's fascinating. I, I agree completely. I always think that, that when I ask people, what's the most important thing about juggling? What's the most important thing you can have to be a successful juggler? And I always say it's ideas. It's not technique yeah. or it's not humor. It's ideas. And if we can use juggling as a template to teach people how to create ideas, I don't think ideas are so easy with juggling. Juggling is just this endless well of ideas. I don't understand why it frustrates me that it's taken the community so long to get to this point with us understanding what juggling is. We haven't fully understood it or we've understood it incorrectly or it's like the the ant on the surface, uh, you know, it thinks it's on a two-dimensional plane, but really when you zoom out, it's it's on a ball. Like that's where juggling is right now. We are on a two-dimensional plane. We haven't realized or discovered yet that we live on a sphere. Well, I think there's also too much emphasis on what is good juggling, meaning if you could juggle seven clubs, you're a good juggler. Yeah. I'm more interested in the people who are using juggling as a creative tool. So it's hard to say which is more value, your ability to be a great juggler in the that sense. Here's the deal. This debate, when people have, I think, is like also they, they focus on the wrong point, not like, okay, which one is which and which one is that. Mm-hmm. They are all equally true. They should all be here. 
people who focus on juggling as recreation, we want that community as big as possible. People who focus it on as technical, let's grow that community. People who see artistic, let's grow all of juggling, not just the one area. The dominant area right now is this technical. Uh, and I think probably that comes from like historical, like where the movement started historically with juggling around the world and where communities grew from. I think the American culture probably started a lot of these bad ideas. You know, I see the American culture of juggling to me is the most narrow-minded. I don't mean to insult anyone, but that's like the best way I can describe it mm-hmm. because it has the most limitations out of any form of juggling in other, other parts of the world. And people get defensive. If you step outside of the lines, like you'll get attacked. What do you mean by that? If you, you mean you step outside the lines, meaning... You're not in the current trend of juggling and you get attacked or? There's like this cult of personality as well that I observe in the juggling community. Like it's not important what the person does, but who they are sometimes. Mm. Just because so-and-so did it, it's automatically good. And I think that I don't like these trends. I understand it's part of our, our culture. It's our community. We're learning to grow. We're going through these phases. But I, I don't have the patience for these things. So I think I, this is also, again, what influences the way that I choose to develop my projects. I'm aware that it's there. I see it's a problem. I'm not trying to deal with it now because I think it's something that's going to take generations to fix. And I'm just trying to focus on my little part to push the needle a little further to the left. Well, let's talk about what you're doing now. So you're traveling the world. You're doing these seminars. What was this year like? What kind of places did you go? And what were these, these seminars and experiences like across the world? in general, of course. And what were some of the high points of this year? <laughs> That's a big question. The last three years have been insane. <laughs> okay. I've been traveling nonstop since July 2017, which is when I was at the Smithsonian Folklife Festival in Washington, D.C. And then from that point on, I did a two-year, a little bit less, like an 18-month tour of Europe. Visited, like, I lost count, but dozens and dozens of circus schools, uh, over 50. Uh, seminars around Europe and that's where I began to as I traveled because uh, the, the thing was I was trying to share it the way everyone was telling me to like to become this sort of centralized source of information and this pinnacle within the online community and everyone understands and everyone goes there but that reality wasn't going to happen because the changes that I'm proposing were too big I realized that if I'm going to actually be successful at this I need to go to the places. I need to meet them face-to-face. I need to share the experience with them so they can understand. So that was the idea initially. I didn't have a game plan. I just was going to keep going. And I had the first three months of the tour planned and nothing else. And then I just kept planning as I went. And once people found out that I was on the move, I just kept getting invitations. There is an incredibly large community of people doing social circus work around the world that the juggling community is completely oblivious to. Like for me, the juggling community is a small element of my broader community. The social circus community is alive in Europe. And that tour, the two years of traveling, it wasn't sort of me deciding. It was a community of people being like, oh, we need you here for this thing. And someone else saying, we need him here for that. And everyone coming together and trying to figure out financially how to make it work so that we could get this information to all these places. And this, we could do it in a way that empowered them to become leaders over the information not just to repeat what I'm giving them, because that is the change that we are trying to make. Modeling that experience in Europe, I then took a six-month break in Budapest to recover and process that experience. And that's when I looked back and I reflected on, okay, which cities did we have the most impact and which didn't we? And we designed a project for Latin America where we focused specifically on three goals for each city that takes me about four to six weeks to complete. So far, 
I arrived in, in Mexico in April. So far, I have been to Mexico, Costa Rica, Chile, and now I'm in Argentina. Each country, we've managed to train over 60 people and develop collective leaders. Collective leaders are people that we spend more time with me, that I mentor and develop and give access to training resources and, uh, and an international community of other people from other cities who are responsible for mentoring the growth of functional juggling. So we're also developing international networks and webs that didn't exist before, that right now it's under the Quat Props banner, but it's very, gonna be very easy to transition that into an independent. Like my dream would be the, to transition that idea into the first international network of social circus educators in Latin America, because they are behind here. They don't have that infrastructure yet, and Europe does. I'm traveling a lot, I'm sharing a lot. Everyone, everywhere is so welcoming and so grateful that it's not something like I'm planning anymore, it's just something that keeps happening. This project. I am the face of it, but you are seeing the work of hundreds uh, of people from all over the world. That, that's what this project represents. It's, it's not just me. I'm the vehicle that transfers the information. And it seems like, too, that you're actually going to some dangerous areas. I've been following some of your adventures, and I think you were in Chile, and you had to escape in front of the demonstrators. What was, what was that experience like? That was life-changing. That was a life-changing experience. Uh, I will never be the same after that. It happened very quickly. It was actually, the good timing was, it was like immediately after the seminar finished, that's, we went out into the streets and the manifestation started. And it, it really shocked me because I had no idea how quickly society could completely collapse. Like, you know, you think it would take time, but it doesn't, it just happens. Within a period of like 36 hours, everything that was normal is no longer normal. I never felt in danger. When I, I went out in the streets and I, I, I participated in the manifestations with, the, with my friends, with the circus people in the, of Chile every day that I was there. But the, the, the challenge became logistical because there was a lot of interruptions with um, transportation and there was a lot of interruptions with access to, to food sources. You could get things, but it just took more time. And what ended up happening is I had to move through six cities and in each of those cities, someone that I may or may not have met before in my life was there to meet me, to help me move 70 kilograms of equipment onto the next bus, take a coffee with me, and then and wait with me while I wait, waited for my next bus. And that was the six separate organizations that assisted in that travel to get me from uh, Conception into where I am now, Argentina. And that was so for me, it was a beautiful experience to see the community come together in such a way. It sounds like you say life-changing, fearful, but just such a a different experience than most people have through juggling and through this activity. I mean, yeah. your, your approach to it is, is so unique and so interesting. And also the fact that you're doing it for altruistic reasons is, is quite uh, commendable. A really, a, probably a simpler way to understand everything is just not to think of me as a juggler. I, I'm not really a juggler. That's not what I consider. I, I don't define myself uh, by this term. I'm more of a, a social reformist. I believe in change. I am trying to push for social change. That is my what I am. I'm an artist, I'm an educator, and then I'm a juggler. So everything I do is socially driven. I am very radicalized in terms of trying to subvert the dominant paradigms that we have in society, from education to politics to everything else. Uh, I consider myself a, a social warrior. I like that term, social warrior. And how can people get behind your work? How can they find out more about your work? And how can they support your work? They can go online to quatprops.net. They can access the resource tab. There's uh, research information if you're curious about that. You can find out about the collective on the website. I'm starting to get more help from more people. So we are getting better at putting more resources up online. 
also uh, social media. If you follow on social media quad props, that's the best way to keep informed about things that are happening in real time. And also just to get like the YouTube channel, I'm really proud of. I managed to consolidate a lot of the videos that have been coming out and make playlists. So for example, I have a series called Ideas for Play. And these are just different examples of juggling, how you can create juggling in different ways. And it's intended to, to give you inspiration or give you a starting point. You can begin to play with these ideas. I don't own them, I share them with you. And that can help you through those experiences, through that trial and error with this new material you can begin to discover your own path with juggling. I am always producing, making more resources, so there's always going to be more out there. If you want to support the project, Patreon, uh, patreon.com backslash Craig Quat uh, is the Patreon page. My Patreon campaign is set up specifically to help this Latin American project. We have an end date for the tour, which is December 2020. And at that point, I'm going to turn off the Patreon campaign. I'll probably start another one for another project. But just to be clear, I always change the rules. You know, I ch I'm always pushing the systems. So I'm using Patreon in a slightly different way, but that support has helped out tremendously. They do not have the resources in Latin America that they have in North America or Europe. We are making this project happen because people who have nothing are giving me places to sleep. They are feeding me, they are, they are helping me travel. That's how we make this happen. The money from outside of Latin America means a lot to me not just in terms of its value for, for its, its physical effect, but in terms of what it says about the community. Because for me, what I, I'm doing with my career is I'm using my life as a social experiment for everyone to learn from. I'm challenging what is possible. How can we come together as a community? How can we begin to share if we take away ego, if we take away capitalism, what are we capable of? I am one person who 10 years ago said that I was gonna change juggling for everyone. And when I said that, everybody laughed at me. And 10 years later, that is a reality. I change in juggling for everyone. Everyone can juggle now because of this project. And that would only be possible if I had this open source mentality. If I decided to be that if I decided to continue down this limited mindset of this is mine and that is yours, we would not as a community be in the place that we are today. I would maybe, I would probably have a lot more money. I would have tons of more money, but I would not have a world of friends around the world who are dedicated and motivated with me to make social change. And that's, that's the reality of what I have. So what do you think the secret has been as far as your ability to sort of overcome the fear of not having enough, the fear of not being remembered, the fear of not being rewarded financially for your work? How do you feel that you've been able to sort of develop this philosophy and be this global citizen who has this such uncertainty in his life, yet it seems like you thrive on this? Is there something that we can learn from, from your approach? I would love if people imitated me. I would love if more people took the chances that I took if they took the risk, because the truth is like the risks were just as big for me. I did not have things handed to me. I failed. I ended up so many times. I've, you know, I've slept on the street, like, but I keep moving forward because I know that I have to. I think when I look out into the world, I see a world that is collapsing. I see a lot of things that are coming that we need to have changed. We needed to have fixed yesterday. And I see a lot of people who are not freaking out about that. And every day that I'm alive, I'm aware that there's atrocities going on all over the world and that we can only fix the things that we have the intelligence, that we have the capability to. We have an education system that is outdated, that is designed to control people, not to liberate them. And arts changes the brain in a way that allows people to challenge information. So it is my mission to get as much art into the world as I can so that we can have a chance I have no problem taking this risk because the risk of not doing anything is so much greater. I wish more people felt that way. And if they did, 
maybe they would be experiencing the things that I'm experiencing. Yeah, you must be experiencing some amazing stuff, just the ability to travel, to be, in, be involved with all these communities. I have experienced circus everywhere. I have been not just seen it, I've been part of these communities. So it's such an intense experience. And I feel so much gratitude and responsibility because I'm learning so much about the global movement of circus. Great, man. Hey, we're about the end of our podcast. What do you want people to know about Craig Quatt? And what's the dream? What do you want to leave people with as far as when they think about you and what you're doing, what your sort of overall ambition is? I mean, what, what don't we know? Because we've talked about what you want to do. What's maybe some conception about you that, that people have gotten wrong? Or is there anything you want to set the record straight? Or how, do you, how would you like to end this? this podcast? What, what message would you like to give at the end? The message that I'd like to give at the end is that for the people who are already with us, thank you. <laughs> and uh, to the people who are not with us yet, like, it's okay. <laughs> Just wait. <laughs> Just wait. <laughs> that's, that's, well, that's, no, I, I, don't, I don't feel I need to say things anymore. I just feel the need to do things. Hmm. So say maybe watch you through your actions to see what you yeah. do. Yeah, because there's no there's no point. I, I tried, and it was a terrible experiment for me to try to engage in these these dialogues with people mm -hmm. who are not ready. So I'm just going to keep changing the world one city at a time, and if I keep doing that, eventually that will be the reality. <laughs> eventually, you'll change the world, and I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I appreciate I appreciate all you're doing. It sounds like a wonderful process, a wonderful project, and I appreciate you taking the time to come on this podcast and and tell us about it. So thank you very much for being on the podcast, Craig Quatt. Thank, thank you, you very much. Ciao. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything Podcast number 76, my conversation with Craig Quatt. I hope all listeners will support Craig and his desire to make juggling accessible to everyone. Good luck on your mission, Craig. We'll be watching and wishing you the best. All right. Let's thank our sponsor one more time, the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Go to juggle.org to find out about this great group of jugglers. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody, and drop everything except when you're juggling.